Hello, and a warm welcome to this edition of the Africa Legal Podcast. I am absolutely thrilled to be joined today by the Africa team, representatives of the Africa team, from leading law firm Slaughter and May. So here with me today is Nigel Boardman, Same Shah, and Justina Omoteo. Now, Nigel is a lawyer who typically requires little introduction, but forgive this brief overview. Nigel's broad practice includes domestic and international corporate finance, mergers and acquisitions, joint ventures, IPOs, demergers, private acquisitions and disposals, private equity, public takeovers, issues of compliance and corporate governance, investigations and insolvency, restructurings, investigations and sports law. And if you didn't already know who Nigel was, that may feel like a long list, but after today's recording, it will seem like a very small one indeed. So Nigel has received a number of accolades in his time, including the Financial Times Special Achievement Award, Chambers Directory's Lifetime Achievement Award, Lawyer of the Decade Award from Financial News. He was included in Debrett's Who's Who and ranked as a star performer for corporate and M&A work by Chambers in its UK, Europe and global directories. Now, on to Sane Shah. Same has a broad financing practice covering acquisition finance, general bank finance, and project finance, as well as restructurings. He also has broad experience advising on corporate and commercial transactions, particularly in the infrastructure, energy, and natural resources sectors. And last but not least is Justina Omoteo. Justina is the business development manager for the international relations team at Slaughter and May, responsible for implementing the firm's strategy in Africa, the Middle East, Central Eastern Europe, and Southern Europe. She acts as a key point of contact for our relationships with the leading independent firms and business development activity in these jurisdictions. So, Nigel, Same, and Justina, a very warm welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us on it. Thanks very much. A real pleasure. Now, let's dive right in. So, we'll start with Nigel. Nigel, You've a long and illustrious career, but to focus specifically on Africa and its markets, do you recall when the continent first appeared on your desk to trigger what has become a deep connection? And further, where has this connection led you to? Yes, uh, your question uh, provoked my memory. And I go back to 1973 uh, when I was a trainee at Slaughter and May, then called an article clerk. And the partner for whom I worked, uh, Derek Simon, did a lot of work for a company called Guthrie Corporation, which was mainly a Malaysian rubber company, but it also had interests across Africa. And the first deal that I did in Africa was in 1974, early 1974, for Guthrie in Malawi. And it was the acquisition of a trading business in Malawi. And it stuck in my mind because at the time, Uh, we were buying a company and there was stamp duty on the company's shares. And uh, in the UK, you could avoid stamp duty by what was known as a stamp duty avoidance trick, Uh, no longer available, incidentally, and no longer regarded as moral, but then it was all right. And so I sent a note to the lawyers in Malawi saying, could we avoid the stamp duty charge by using this trick in Malawi? And instead of getting a legal analysis back, what I got back was a note from the Malawi lawyer, by telex, of course, because there was no other means of communication. Absolutely. Which said, um, 
my brother-in-law is the Chancellor of the Exchequer in Malawi, full stop. And no discussion of whether or not we could do it, so we paid the stamp duty. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know which way to take that. I'd say, what, is that an invitation or a, or a gate closed? <laughs> I thought it was a gate closed, but I was very young and innocent. <laughs> um, then as an associate, I got involved in quite a lot of transactions across Africa. And you know, one of the things when we talk about Africa is it is one of the most diverse continents on the world. 54 countries, give or take, depending on how you treat Western Sahara and Somaliland, massively different uh, in its peoples, its economies, its geographies, its climate, uh, and its state of economic development. So I think it's always a bit, um, have to be careful of generalizing about Africa more than you do about almost any other continent. But uh, And this was highlighted by the next uh, touch point I had, which was working for a US bank, which was trying to finance an oil refinery in Egypt. Uh, and this was whilst I was an associate. And then I worked on an oil palm plantation in Zimbabwe, trading company in Nigeria, copper mine in Zambia, and the list goes on. And, and all of those uh, were during my period as a, an associate. And one that sticks in my mind, just um, as I became a partner, I worked for what was then called the Council of Foreign Bondholders, which was a rather gentlemanly forerunner for the distressed debt traders of today. And they were seeking to get the government of Zimbabwe to accept that it was responsible for Odishan debt. And they had a council's opinion which said that there was no responsibility. And I found this slightly difficult to accept. So I went away and did some research. And I thought, Zimbabwe has taken over Rhodesia House in London. How did they do that? And sure enough, there was a statutory instrument which made them inherit all the assets of the Rhodesian government, but also all of its debts. And I had this splendid meeting with a senior partner of Linklaters who said, on behalf of Zimbabwe, we don't have any liability, but we're willing to have a sort of ex gratia discussion. And I was able to hand across to him the statutory instrument and say, why do you not think this paragraph applies? To see him go, oh my God, I've misadvised myself and bring the meeting to an end whilst he retreated in disorder. Oh, to be a fly on that wall. Yeah, <laughs> great moment for me as a sort of young Turk at the time. And then before I became a partner in 1981, I attended a pitch for the government of Botswana. And you remember Botswana got its independence in 1966. At the time it did, I think it was the third poorest country in the world. And indeed, uh, Britain paid it to go away, gave it a, a, a dowry to go away. And for the first few years of Botswana's independent life, it had its capital city in Rustenburg in South Africa because there was nowhere for the government to exist. Haberoni was not yet built. And the dowry from the British government was used to pay it. So, so it was an had been an extremely poor country. And uh, then they discovered diamonds and other resources but I met uh, on this pitch the Attorney General, M.D. Makama, who was a great man, and I absolutely loved his attitude to life and to work. And he was typical of that Botswana generation of independence politicians like Madame Chiepe, who was a fantastically strong uh, Minister of Mines, and Ket Maziri, who went on to become president after Suretsi Kama. 
Uh, and these were fun people to be with. They were extraordinarily able. And they just had a really good sense of morality. Um, and to give you an example, uh, later on, uh, when they were over and I was working with them, um, I took them out for a lunch. Uh, and um, there was a senior, uh, the head of the permanent secretary of the finance department, and one of his juniors. And the junior ordered fillet steak. And uh, the um, Balezi Harlati, who was the um, permanent secretary of finance, uh, said to, said something into him, Setswana, and he changed his order. <laughs> know your audience, I think, is the lesson there. Fantastic. And what he then said to me is, I do not want our young men to develop expensive tastes. And they they had this drive to make sure that they behave properly and uh, a rigid code like that, which I thought was fantastic. So I really fell in love with Africa, uh, mainly through my working with the Botswana government, decent, hardworking, fun people. And there was another episode later in my career with them, which again highlighted that kind of approach. I'd been in London with the Permanent Secretary of Mines and the Permanent Secretary of Finance, a different one. And um, the Permanent Secretary of Finance bought a television to take back with him. But he had to stop off in, in South Africa. And so um, the, uh, the Permanent Secretary of Mines said he would bring it into Botswana for him. And when we got to the customs, the permanent secretary of Botswana produced the television and the customs officer said, is this for your own personal use, sir? And the minister of mine, uh, the permanent secretary of mine said, no, no, it's for a friend of mine. I'm just bringing it in for him because he stopped off in South Africa. And the customs official said, well, I'm afraid you can't do that, sir. Um, you have to leave it here and he will have to collect it when he arrives. And, uh, the permanent secretary of mine, uh, Mineral, said, well, actually, the person is your boss. He's the permanent secretary of finance, and your boss reports into him. And the customs officer looked him in the eye and said, that's extremely helpful, sir, because he will know that I am telling the truth. Fantastic. And, and the television stayed there for the permanent secretary of finance to collect. So really, and this is a slightly long diversion, but um, it gave me an interest in Africa, particularly Botswana. And it also gave me an interest in the culture of Africa and how it was that these uh, people, without a great deal of education, um, were able to negotiate with and uh, develop a country on a democratic basis um, and uh, so I became, through that, interested in African tribally used art, and I collect African tribally used art. And I've remained attracted and attached to the continent ever since. MD Makama, who I mentioned earlier, uh, is the only client I've had who had to leave a meeting because his cattle were being attacked by lions. And there have been other episodes of that sort which continue to make it uh, a charming and interesting challenge. Never a dull moment. And Nigel, diversion aside, if there's anyone that can get away with it, it, it would be you pulling out those kinds of anecdotes. I, I, I'm a sucker. <laughs> so, so you're more than welcome. It, you know, it's great to hear that it is the very governments on which this this incredible continent relies and and develops through that gave you some of your your most you know 
memorable episodes in in dealing with uh with with the continent it's uh it gives me a lot of a lot of hope and uh, you know focusing more on the the deals and the transactions again you've mentioned a few but are there any truly standout deals um you know either from the the, the beginning of your career or towards the the the, the, the current well, uh, yeah let me start in in Botswana um there would be a couple I I've negotiated uh, for the Botswana government on their diamond contracts with De Beers. And that is one of the uh, only success stories of a public-private partnership across Africa. And it's worked really well, both for the country and uh, for the shareholders. In This would be Debswana. Debswana is the joint venture yeah. vehicle. Yes. And uh, that's been uh, there for since I think 1969 or no 70s, 70-something, 70 77, 76 they found Juaneng, 71 I think Arapa. So um, it's it's been a very, very long and successful partnership between the two uh, and a credit to both parties that they've managed to make that work and uh, both deserve enormous credit for working together. Um, so that would be significant. And then in the north of Botswana, when I first got involved, there was this mine called Bamanguato Concessions, which was set up in 1967, in fact, involving Slaughter May as one of the legal teams involved in it. Uh, but it had um, had some difficult times and had debt restructurings, and there was a threat that it would have to close. This was in 1981. And in fact, it only closed in about twenty, in fact, about three years ago. So we managed to keep open what was the largest private employer in Botswana for a very long period of time, uh, bringing wealth and uh, skills to that area of Botswana. And I feel proud of that. So those would be within Botswana, uh, two of the things that stick out for me. Then other ones. Um, I worked with the post-apartheid government of South Africa on the reform of company law, and that was a really interesting challenge to uh, make a modern system of law which fitted the South African economy uh, and worked uh, within the context of its history and traditions. Um, There have been others around Africa, but those would be the standout ones, I suppose, for me. Absolutely fascinating, Nigel. You know, such a such a, a rich history of the continent and personal stories that interweave with its development. So speaking of development, where has this all led to? You know, what, what is your current role in relation to Africa at, at the firm, at Slaughter in May? Yeah, so I chair the Africa practice, uh, which um, is very easy role because Justina and Viz do all the work. Uh, And so chair is quite an appropriate term, I seem to sit there. Um, It does involve uh, meeting the law firms and clients with activities in Africa. And in normal times, it means that I get to travel around Africa, which is a real treat. Uh, uh, We try to make sure that we know all the leading law firms in Africa uh, so that we can direct clients to the appropriate firm for their needs across Africa. And we have no intention of creating our own offices or our own legal practices in Africa. That's not what we do as Slaughter May anywhere in the world, let alone in Africa. Um, 
So we're, we're not going to do that. So we want the local firms to be strong enough to provide the best service possible to our clients when they need it. And our whole policy is to help work closely with African law firms uh, to ensure that our clients receive the best service possible across Africa. Uh, and uh, to do that, we need to know who they are. We need to exchange knowledge and views. We learn a lot from speaking to them about uh, how things work in their countries. And without that knowledge, we would be giving advice blind. And I think there is a danger that people do think that Africa, the local law, doesn't matter when it matters absolutely fundamentally. And making sure that you have a great legal firm beside you uh, to advise on it is crucial. Uh, Justina will talk about some of the particular activities we have, but to give you a sort of taster, we run a, a, a legal exchange um, symposium every year, once in Africa, once in London, um, uh, every other year, where we get about 120 people from about 30 different countries uh, to exchange views and share views on African legal developments. We have a similar program for lawyers just about the stage when they become young partners called Explore, where they come to London uh, for three weeks for an intensive training program and get to meet each other. And again, Justine will run through those in more detail. And we have a helpline for law firms where if they haven't come across a weather derivative, we can help them with that. We send out training packs. Uh, we help with precedents and uh, provide some advice on software programs that they might use and taxonomies to keep precedents uh, and build up a library, which is useful for some of the uh, law firms in smaller jurisdictions. So what we're trying to do is help African firms be successful. And uh, there was quite a good article by or a review by one of the African legal cons consultancies, which divided um, law firms up into huggers and hoggers. In other words, are you helping African law firms or are you trying to hog the work away from them? And our intent and practice is to be huggers, not hoggers. Absolutely fantastic insight there, Nigel. Uh, moving on to Same, um, as one of the, the future huggers rather than hoggers, uh, you became a partner at the firm this year and are set to continue and expand upon your existing work with the Slaughter and May Africa Practice Group. Now, tell us, what is your vision for the firm's interaction with the continent and further, the firms you work so closely with in key jurisdictions? Sure. Um, I should start by saying that I've spent my life so far as a partner in a semi-lockdown state. So one of the frustrations has been not being able to visit the continent and visit um, all the people at the various firms we have great relationships with and sort of see them face to face. But I'm hoping to do that you know, in the not too distant future. Let's see. In terms of our international strategy, I think our current international strategy strategy works really well. So I wouldn't see it changing drastically over the coming years. I think our key focus will be to continue to promote our Africa practice in a similar way to what we currently do. So that would be things like trips on the continent. Currently, those are all virtual, but hopefully there'll be physical in-person trips soon. Um, we'll continue to 
build long-term relationships with clients, and that's both clients in Africa, but also international clients who have an interest in Africa or who are looking to expand in Africa. And also attending and speaking at conferences with our relationship law firms to build that deep knowledge and understanding that Nigel talked about. Ultimately, though, I'd say that the most important part of our strategy is actually just working on complex African matters. That is our forte, and that's what we love doing as lawyers. I'm a financing lawyer with a particular interest in projects and project finance. So in this context, I think Africa is going to be a really exciting place in the coming years, uh, particularly as we start to see the energy transition gain momentum and see how that really develops in Africa compared to other regions of the world. In terms of how we sort of think about Africa, our key jurisdictions of focus are Kenya, South Africa, Egypt, Nigeria and Ghana because they act as hubs for North, East, South and West Africa. We also seem to be doing most of the work in those countries. So that's where we tend to focus. But what we do also need to bear in mind, and Nigel touched on this, is that Africa is not a homogenous continent. It's a very large and very diverse place. So we need to be careful, we need to be careful not to solely focus on, on specific countries. And we we are very keen to continue building experience and relationships all over the continent. In terms of um, law firms in Africa, as Nigel said, we've established some really great, strong relationships in the key markets I mentioned, but also in markets beyond that. And our international strategy is not to have exclusive, exclusive relationships with law firms. So when we talk to clients about about which local council to use. We, we decide that on a case-by-case -case basis because different clients have different needs and preferences and we need to stay dynamic and versatile. This does have a benefit, I'd say, to our relationship firms because what, what I've found, um, particularly as an associate, as a partner as well, is that we can often introduce our, uh, introduce our, our relationship firms the clients have previously used a different firm so, so I suppose that sort of takes the hugger not hogger analogy slightly further um, oh, I, I couldn't agree more I think you've, you've definitely established the credentials uh, on the hugger rather than hogger side of things and you know I couldn't agree more on the, the necessity and the need for for that flexible approach you know this is far from a homogenous continent it is as Nigel said probably you know uh, most at your peril to try and think of this particular continent as as you know uh, one that has singular um, uh, cultural issues, business issues, and and so on. So your your approach does seem to match that. And and speaking of you know always having the client um, uh, client's best interests at heart, I'm interested. What do you think is the single biggest or most important gap? in the delivery of required legal services on and in relation to the continent, which you think the firm is uniquely positioned to solve? So, so I wouldn't say that there is a gap in the delivery of legal services we as a firm provide. Um, I mean, our focus and what we pride ourselves on is being able to act on the most complex transactions all over the world. So I think the most important question for us really is how we ensure that we maintain the highest level of service 
to our client in relation to any matter or transaction which involves Africa. And one way we do this is by knowing and having deep relationships with the leading law firms in the region, maintaining those relationships and actually helping helping those firms to develop with some of the programs which Nigel mentioned and which Justina will come on to talk about. Um, it's really about growing together with those firms on the ground. And I think that our multi-specialist approach, together with partnering with the top legal minds on the continent, makes us quite a unique proposition for clients. One of the things I'd say about transactions in Africa, and I think Nigel brought this out in some of his anecdotes, is that they often require quite a creative approach to, let's say, novel legal issues, which you may not encounter in other parts of the world, particularly the Western world. And this is where I think our broad experience practices partnered with the best minds in the continent really shine and really help our clients. Absolutely. And, you know, that creative approach to novel legal issues that you mentioned, I think it's, it's, it's worth noting that they can be quite fun. You know, this is a this is a frontier market in some respects. You know, there aren't many places where you do get to, you know, flex the the the, the brain muscles to quite an extent, or be granted the the opportunity to be as creative and as as novel in your approach as a lawyer than uh, than many uh, opportunities that that Africa presents. And switching back to to Nigel here for a moment, Nigel. Sitting as a non-executive director on the UK Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, the BEIS, what insight can you offer on the future trading relationship between the UK and select African jurisdictions? I mean, do you foresee the African Continental Free Trade Agreement as increasing or decreasing the willingness for African states to strike a deal with the UK? The African Free Trade Agreement is a great conceptual step forward, uh, and people deserve a lot of credit for getting it off the ground. At the moment, it is not proving a practical step forward, particularly, and uh, I think that will take time. Uh, But I I think it's the right way to go. Africa, as you know, has far little intracontinental trade than most other, if not all other, continents. And that's partly a result of its heritage and its geography. Uh, And it's something that needs to be corrected if we want to see, as we do, Africa develop fast into a stronger set of economies. So uh, I'm a strong supporter of the African free trade uh, agreement. And I think that it will be good for Africa. And what's good for Africa is good for the rest of the world, including the UK. Uh, Trade is not... uh, a solely competitive activity, the world benefits from trading activity because the country becomes wealthier, uh, the world becomes wealthier, and therefore there is more markets for people's goods and services. So uh, that, to my mind, is is the thing that I would focus on most as being a highly desirable outcome. With it, of course, there is a massive infrastructure deficit. Many of the colonial powers uh, made routes to the coast but didn't make routes between uh, the various countries where they might not be the colonial power. Uh, And so the infrastructure across Africa is not as strong as it needs to be in order to encourage that free trade. 
And to get the free trade working, you need not only the legal structure, but you need the fiscal structure. Coming to your question about the UK, the UK uh, post-Brexit is able to negotiate its own free trade agreements. And I don't know how many of your listeners will have actually looked at a free trade agreement. Uh, I've looked at one or two. Um, uh, It's not an area that I specialize in, but I've looked at them uh, out of interest. And when you are negotiating a free trade agreement on behalf of 28 countries uh, as the EU, there are a whole lot of constituents you have to take into account. Uh, And uh, to give a simple example, the French will want you to protect the name of Champagne, Uh, the British will want you to protect the name of Stilton, and so on, and every country will have its own particular preferences. Uh, That takes a long time. Now that we are one country negotiating, I think, and we have in place many agreements that the EU have uh, with Africa, which we can replicate and simplify, I think there is no reason to believe that we can't develop very strong replacement trading arrangements uh, to replace those that the EU currently has. So I'm optimistic about the ability to do that and to make them more focused on what we and the individual African country regard as priorities. So I I believe that we should see an increase in trade. Uh, Theresa May made her trip to Africa uh, to encourage that, and I think that there is more scope for those kind of links. But basically, the two have a lot in common. It's a common time zone. The um, economies are, in many cases, synergistic, and it would be great to see an increase in trade. And I couldn't agree more. As someone who is uh, exceptionally interested in seeing greater interaction and trade between the UK and, and key African jurisdictions, I have a small a small plea to you there, Nigel, is do 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 stick around with the BEIS and uh, and and help them do all they can when it comes to advising uh, you know our government on on how to make this happen. So thank you very much for that insight there. Uh, moving on to Justina. You lead on the development and operation of the firm's very well-regarded Africa Symposium, P-L-E-A-S-E, or please, which is the Practical and Legal Exchange African Symposium. Now, I understand that there are some important changes to the event format for 2020. Uh, Would you care to give us a quick snapshot? For the first time this year, please will be taking place online in a virtual format on the 26th of November. Just to take a step back, previously we had held pleas alternate years at our office in London, with the other year in Africa. To date, this has included Botswana, Kenya, Ghana, Morocco, Uganda. And that was absolutely amazing because we get to experience the different cultures across the continent. The key objective of pleas is to bring together professionals with an interest in Africa, predominantly lawyers, with the key objective of bringing like-minded individuals who share a common interest on the continent and really create that community fee whereby we all come together on an annual basis and discuss issues pertaining to Africa. The police programme is usually three days. On the first, on the Wednesday evening, that comprises of a nice dinner, choose a Thursday and Friday full day conference, and then on the Saturday we get to explore the jurisdiction we're in. 
Um, obviously, when we were in London last year, we had 150 people, which was quite a good turnout for us. And the attendees comprised of uh, private practice lawyers from our relationship law firms across the continent and some of our relationship firms further afield that also have interest in Africa. Um, In-house lawyers uh, from our clients and some government officials. With COVID, um, obviously, we were meant to be in... This was meant to be our Africa year. Sadly, we've had to reinvigorate things and that's why we're now online which is not it's not so bad after all because it opens up many other avenues and this year's um this year we'll conclude the program by bringing everyone together and really just having a a a nice discussion about what the continent and what the future for the continent is and I think it's it's so important to be bringing those three sets together, you know, the international legal expertise of, of, of Slaughter and May, your local law firms and the clients. You know, the most important piece of the pie is often forgotten. So it's great to see that tripartite approach to, to the organisation and operation of this event. And I think it being online is simply going to ensure that it's even easier for the right individuals to connect with, with other like-minded individuals without any burdensome travel arrangements, hotel costs or visas. So I think it could be a bumper year for the event rather than anything of the negative. But but most importantly, Justina, let's talk about content and outcomes. What is the key theme or themes for the 2020 event? And talk us, uh, you know, as to why, please, is so central to the growth and development of the firm's Africa group. So this year's theme, it wouldn't be right with COVID-19 to not have a theme that's particularly relevant to that. So the theme of this year's conference is navigating the crisis. We felt, you know, pandemic or all, we're still navigating. It's still choppy waters at the moment. Um, and this, the programme will have a, a strategic focus on M&A trends across the continent and how companies have recovered or are recovering from the impact of COVID-19. We will then be rolling out a series of webinars next year um, for a for a few months. And this is to co- provide further content on please. And particular topics would include sustainability, oil and gas. Um, and we know busy people don't have time to sit down for a full day and take in a day of content in a virtual format. So by having a series of webinars, we just feel it's much more punchy for for very busy individuals. Please is a central part of the growth of our Africa practice group, because as Sammy mentioned, it's a a huge part of being having a successful Africa practice is to know the best minds. And via the symposium, we're, we're not only able to collaborate jointly by presenting topical issues with relationship law firms, but we're able to learn about the various issues on the continent um, and get a deeper understanding of the of the markets which allow us to better serve our clients. And ultimately, when we do work on those nuanced transactions, we believe we can provide a better service. 
Well, I, for one, am extremely interested in, in this development, the fact that there's going to be a series of web seminars rather than just a singular event. You know, you talk about the necessity for information exchange and networking. I think that, you know, the opportunity is just enhanced there. There's there's a greater period of time to actually meet, connect, discuss and learn rather than it all being focused on a, on a singular event in a singular location. So Africa Legal will certainly be doing our part in ensuring that our community are aware of uh, the, the, the please events and the web seminars and we look forward to, to working with you on that well everyone that does bring us to time believe it or not and i have had a wonderful time speaking with you all today so nigel same and justina a very big thank you from me for joining me on this episode of the africa legal podcast and as always a very warm thank you to all of our listeners. If you are new to the series and would like to peruse our back catalogue, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to your preferred podcast provider to make sure that you don't miss out on any must-hear content which is hosted by this series. Also, never forget to visit us at africalegal.com for all the news, views, and insights that improve your life as a modern African legal professional. So without further ado, I will say I have been Tom Pearson, and this has been the Africa Legal Podcast. <laughs>